Let's hope you have a Bible. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3 tonight. Um, we have, think it's been two weeks since we studied last week, Mother's Day, so we were uh, last uh, looking at chapter 2 um, in the conversation about false prophets and um, those who misrepresent and those who wrongly um, speak for the Lord. Um, we, we talked about those that want to tear down what God uh, is trying to build up. Um, and, and there's really a clean break between chapter 2 and chapter 3, so we won't spend too much drawing a connection from our last time. But if there is any through line, and as you all know, there is uh, often uh, the chapters and verses are all put in there by man, so there's a clear connection between, um, uh, between the chapters even. Um, if there is a through line, um, it's back up in chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. You'll remember that Peter took us through this if-then scenario where he's addressed the false prophets that were present and would always be present throughout the days of the church. He's talking about the ones that were in his day, that would be in our day. He confidently speaks to both believer and non-believer um, based on past activity of God, based on God's record. And if there's anybody rec- anybody's record that you can base the future on, it's God's, right? Because God's pretty, um, pretty accurate in, in, in standing, you know, staying by what he has said he will do, right? If he says he'll do this, he usually... Most of the, all of the time does it, right? Um, God never backs out of saying, hey, he's going to do something. And if God said this is the way he's going to do, he usually fulfills that uh, in, in that very specific way. Um, so he confidently speaks to us, speaks to those who believe and those who don't believe. And he says, based on the past activity of God, we can trust that God will have the last word. Um, and and, and if in, in, in those few verses that we read, his, he, he reminds us that God's promises to his people will be realized and his warnings to his enemies will be proven true that the promise of salvation will be realized it may sometimes feel like it's a ways off but we can rest assured that God will keep his promise but also on the other side of the coin and, and equally as emphatic from Peter is that the warnings that God has issued to his enemies he will keep his word to them as well and his warnings will be proven true and, and Peter references things that took place in the ancient days um, and in those few verses as Peter talked about Satan and his angels that rebelled and were cast down to hell, right? Hell was created for the devil and his angels. And, and Peter talks about how if God judged those angels that rebelled, if he cast them down to hell, and he says if God um, judged the ancient world that followed after the devil and fell into his, uh, his deception, if God flooded the ancient world, if God brought destruction on Sodom, which became a city that really was full of disciples of this false way, that if God judged them, then there is a judgment day coming for all who likewise rebel and follow after evil, right? That if God judged the devil and his angels, if God judged the generation that rebelled when Noah was alive, if God judged the city of Sodom, we can likewise know that God will judge those who rebel in a like manner, right? That's just a confidence that we can have. But also, there's hope in those verses because Peter refers to how God saved Noah out of the ancient world, how God saved Lot out of the worldly city, and if God saved them from judgment, He will spare us as well. And that's what Peter really concludes back in verse number 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of 
judgment. So from there, Peter spun off talking about false prophets, and we spent a whole evening talking about those, and we talked about Balaam and how that's kind of a, he's a picture of the false prophets even in our day. Uh, but now he's wrapped back around to talking about what he will call, he'll refer to as the last days, and the heading in my Bible for chapter 3, um, maybe in yours or, or maybe it may be different, but the heading in my Bible is the, la- the day of the Lord will come. So You'll see this in the New Testament and the Old Testament that often the end time or the, uh, the, the, the end of days is referred to as the last days or the day of the Lord. And, and day being kind of a, a way to, to summarize the entire activity of God in the end time. Not specifically a day, but just the, 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 the kind of the rollout of God's final plan. So the emphasis on the will come uh, because sometimes it feels like between the unseen good and the unseen bad, we feel the bad far more often. Isn't it true that sometimes when you can't see the bad, you can still feel it, right? We don't see the evil forces, but we sure do feel them, right? And we don't, we don't see the good force, the God who is at work, but, and sometimes we feel that, but sometimes we don't, right? More often than not, the, the evil and the wickedness is more present and more pressing, and often we're wondering, where is God at? And the ancient psalmist asked those questions over and over again. God, where are you? I can feel the evil, but I can't feel or see you or find you. And, and, and Peter has written to us about the unseen wicked forces, how they manifest themselves in this life, but he also tells us that the unseen hope will be revealed in the next. And it's in this tension that we live, right? It's in this tension that we live, but the tension between what we can't see that is wicked but we can feel it and we suffer under it. And what we can't see that is godly and that is full of the hope of glory and that often we get glimpses of it, but we don't live in that full realized state. And it's in that tension of not giving up because evil seems to persist, but believing that God will one day restore all things. And we live in that tension. We live in that in between, don't we? And we all know that very well, right? We see it all around us. Um, and, and, and Peter is going to lean into that place that we all live. He wants us to kind of wrestle in that place tonight. He wants us to acknowledge that, yes, the wickedness sometimes gets a little bit suffocating, and sometimes the hope gets a little bit dim, and he wants to talk to us about that place that we find ourselves Chapter 3, we're going to read and study just the first seven verses tonight. We'll close the, the last part of the chapter out next time. Peter writes in verse number 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle or this second letter, in both of which I stir up your pure mind by way of reminder, calling back to the first and now this one, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, that's Old Testament, and of the commandment of us, that's New Testament, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So we talked about that before. The foundation of the church, the scriptures, old and new, the prophets of old, the apostles of new, the full revelation of God. We know all about that. Verse 3. Knowing this, first, that scoffers will come in the last days. So that's the last days kind of air quotes that Peter's referring to. Walking according to their own lusts or their own plans their own desires, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. We've heard this this promise. We've heard this warning. I mean, are you really going to continue to say that, oh, He's coming again? I mean, that that, that seems to be just something that you say just to, to try to make yourself feel better. But come on, guys. It's not happening. Verse 5, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water, speaking of Noah's generation, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly Man, so this is a, a tough subject to talk about, and Peter isn't saying this with a grin on his face when he refers to this day of judgment, but he speaks with, rea- with the reality and understanding that there is an end and there is an eternal state that all will live in, whether in heaven or whether in hell, whether in life everlasting or whether in torment everlasting. So Peter literally comes to us, um, uh, first off though, and he wants us to be kind of, uh, he, he wants to sober us up, and we'll talk about what that word means, but he wants us to be um, kind of in a, in a clear uh, state of mind to understand the seriousness of the last days. We don't talk about this flippantly. We don't refer to the last days as if it's something that will never happen or something that is, that is just for up for speculation. But this reality of an end of all days that will decide the fate of everybody. That's a pretty sacred thing to talk about, right? That, that isn't really something I think God wants us to sit around and debate about and speculate about and act as if we know more than others, right? This is a serious conversation when we start talking about eternity and we start discussing about um, where people are going to live forever and, and what all that looks like when it begins to transpire. But Peter says, I write to you, to this second epistle, to, to by which to stir you up with a pure mind and to remind you in this, this phrase to stir you up it's, Peter is literally saying I'm trying to wake everybody up so Peter is kind of you know he's sitting down he's trying to get personal he's trying to get serious with us we talked about this before but Peter uh, but this command to be watchful speaks of uh, our need to be vigilant and our need to be sober um, is one that Peter repeats several times the apostle Paul repeats it several, several times and it's easy to grow uh, to, to, to grow uh, forgetful or to neglect what God is up to it's easy to tune out what God is up to eternally and become so focused on what we see and what we experience and what we are out for and what we're looking forward to, it's easy to forget that God is up to something big and God is up to something eternal and we're involved in that and we're invited to be a part of that. And Peter says, hey guys, I want us to be awake so we don't miss what God is doing. And isn't that that important, right? If we know that God is going to do something big and he has invited us to tune into it, wouldn't you turn the channel on so you might check it out? Peter said, I want you to set your TiVo for this. I don't want you to miss this. I want you to know what God is up to. And it's almost like Peter knows a thing or two about dozing off at important moments. Uh, remember when Jesus was transfigured, he saw him in the glory. He understood him as the Messiah. But you may not know this. Peter almost didn't remember that amazing moment. Let me show you what Luke tells us about that moment. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men who stood with him. 
And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, Moses, and Elijah, not knowing what he said. So Peter is, it, it, or Luke tells us that Peter was pretty sleepy. And he, you know, all of a sudden saw this bright light. He was supposed to, you know, Jesus invited him to be a part of this. And he wanted him to, to, to experience this amazing moment. And Peter fell asleep, right, when they were on the mountain of transfiguration. And Peter wakes up and he sees Moses and Elijah. And he's like, whoa, this is, not what I expected. I guess we should build some shrines for these guys. Missing the moment that God was trying to show who Jesus was greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. Peter knew a little bit about dozing off. He knew a little bit about missing out what God was up to. Um, Also, in another very, even more important moment in Peter's life, the night that Jesus was arrested, remember this, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here, Jesus saying, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, you can imagine this. Jesus is is about to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world, right? The weight of sin, the weight of eternity is on his shoulders. He is about to experience the wrath of God in our place. He is about to experience hell for us, right? Can you imagine what kind of weight that was? Jesus had always been in step, step by step... And, 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 and fellowship with the Father. He had never not known full fellowship and full companionship, full uh, presence with God. And Jesus is about to be separated from the Father. That they had this agreement that the Father would look away from Him as sin was placed on Him and that He would pour out judgment on His only Son, God in flesh. And in that moment, Jesus would become sin for us. He who knew no sin would become sin. He who was the delight of God, the apple of God's eye, the beloved Son of God would suddenly become the most abhorrent thing in God's eyes. Can you imagine that? How sacred, how how holy that moment was for Jesus as He wrestled through all this, knowing it had to be done to save us. And as Jesus is about to go into the garden and pray about drinking the cup of sin, drinking the cup of sinners that we ought to be drinking, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to go into this place of sacred prayer with him. And you'll know what happens. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. He said, guys, I just want you to soak this in. He's not asking them to watch out for the guards, right? He's not afraid of the guards. Jesus is already prepared for this. He knows what's going to happen, but he just wants them to see what is going on. He wants them to observe what God is up to, to understand the seriousness and the sacredness of this moment. And sometimes God asks me and you to do that, right? And sometimes we always want to be involved. We always want to be, you know, in in the middle of the action. And sometimes God just says, hey, I want you to remain here. I want you to watch. I want you to soak all this up. I want you to observe what God is doing. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for just an hour? This is a convicting sermon in and of itself, isn't it? Peter... Can you, can you not stay awake? I mean, are, are you so, you know, otherwise attuned? Are you, are you so otherwise expensed with all your energy that you haven't got anything left for me? Man, this is convicting, isn't it? Simon, did you, did you run out of all the energy doing other things and now you can't even focus on what this is all about? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. I bet they didn't. So Peter writes to you and me, and he says, I'm trying to stir y'all up. I'm trying to wake y'all up. You know why I'm trying to wake y'all up? Because I've fallen asleep too many times. I've missed out on so much that God has tried to show me. I mean, this is an apostle, right? I mean, this is a guy who is receiving revelation from God and is one of the few men that has a signature in the Bible. And Peter is saying, I've missed out on some stuff. I mean, that's pretty big, right? I mean, he's an apostle, right? One of the foundation pillars of the New Testament, of the Bible, of the church. And he's saying, guys, I've missed some stuff. Can you imagine? I've missed out on some stuff, guys. And God, I don't want y'all to miss out on stuff because I have missed plenty. And, And just take you back to the garden, how Jesus closes this up. He came to them a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Are y'all still sleeping? Are are you still resting? Is this really the time for that? He says, it's enough. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed in this very hour. Can you imagine how they had to live with that, right? I mean, Jesus just just, 12 hours later would die on a cross and forgive them of that sin and would wash away that guilt. But come on, that would be something pretty heavy to have hanging over you for the rest of your life, knowing that Jesus said, hey guys, y'all have missed out this this, this important moment that I wanted to share with y'all. And hey, I'm about to be arrested, so I hope y'all are ready for this. Again, all that happened as it needed to happen, as it was foreordained to happen. I think that's pretty heavy to think about, though, as Peter is trying to say to us. I know what it's like to be drowsy and to lose sight of what God is up to. All of these times, Peter's sleepiness, Peter's drowsiness his, was symbolic for his, what, what is often our own even, his lack of vigilance. Lack of perspective for the big picture. We often teach our kids at VBS to watch out for and to seek out for God. Usually the, the curriculum uses, uses, language like, uses language like God sightings. Find God in your everyday life. And I think we could learn a lot from that childlike curriculum, right? We need to be more sensitive and more observant. We need to seek out the Lord more often in our daily lives. And if we're seeking out for Him and we're following Him, we're aware of where He's going. We're aware of where we're going. We'll complain a lot less. We'll bicker a lot less. And we'll be more focused on what He is up to. And the bad days won't be such a burden because we're looking forward to the eternal day, right? And all of a sudden, the bumps in the road are just a speed bump in the the process of getting to where God has promised He is going to take us. Most of us, we don't think about that. You know why? Because we are asleep. And I don't want me to to beat up on anybody, right? We're all guilty of this, aren't we? All of us. You know, I often talk about how our planet is moving through space and our solar system is moving through space and our galaxy is moving through space millions and billions light years, right, at a time. I love talking about that because we are headed towards, we are moving towards a destination, aren't we? And our destination is God. And like any road trip, if we pay close attention, there will be signs on the roadside that say, hey, you're getting closer. Hey, you're headed towards me, right? 
If you've ever been on the interstate for a few miles, you'll see there's signs for restaurants or for, uh, you know, resorts or for places that, you know, drawing crowds and every few more exits you get close to it, right? It'll say, you're almost there, just a few more miles, right? And, And the signs will continue to remind you that, hey, you are getting closer. Do we pay attention to those signs? Do we pay attention to those reminders that God has laid out in front of all of us? Now, we'll talk about this, some of these signs later. But Jesus gave us a heads up when asked for a sign. On one occasion, He taught them they ought to always be able to interpret and understand the signs of the times. And this wasn't to encourage charts or speculation and theories that distract rather than focus our attention. It was just to state the obvious. That, hey, we're headed to a concrete place. And aren't we reminded every day all over the place that we are headed towards a destination, that we are not in control of our destinies? When things don't go the way we anticipated them to go, when things break, God forbid, when somebody passes, we are reminded that this life is short and that this world is going somewhere. Hopefully, we're going somewhere better. We need to be sober and awake and aware and focused on where we are going. Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says this in his own words. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That's pretty, you know, that's profound, but it's kind of common sense, right? That you're closer today than you were yesterday. Now that shouldn't take, uh, you know, didn't take an inspired person to write, but he was inspired. We ought to wake from our sleep because we're closer today than we ever have been. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So Paul says as we continue to move toward this destiny, we ought to equip ourselves and prepare ourselves and ready ourselves and be aware and observant of where we're going. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy, all these things that distract us or the product of being distracted, being invested in the wrong things. Peter says he wants us to have a pure and sincere mind in that first verse. The literal word behind pure or sincere is the word unalloyed. It means a purified metal, not a mixed metal. Right? Our coins and our currency in our country, they used to be pure elements, right? Silver or copper. Now they are a blended element. Blended elements. Peter calls for our minds to be purified so that we can properly see the Lord. Because your purity is directly tied to your clarity. Show me someone that is so, other, so focused in so many different ways, their clarity as to what God is up to is diluted as High as it can be. Jesus made it pretty simple when he said this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You want to have clarity about God's will? You want to know what God is up to? You want to know where you're going? You want to know where God, what God is trying to do and work through you? Be purified. Anything that is polluting you, anything that is mixing in with the, with the good things that God has given you, anything that is detracting from the Lord, get rid of it because not only is it making you impure, it's blinding you. And last time I checked, when you're not seeing well on the road, it doesn't just put you at risk, does it? It puts everybody around you at risk. 
So the importance of purity, the importance of clarity, doesn't just affect me, it affects you, it affects everybody. And we're pummeling through space, right? Millions of miles an hour, right? There's a lot of people at risk if we don't get this right. Peter tells us in verse 2 more about having a purified mind, how we can be focused. He says, you, you should be mindful of the words that were spoken by the prophets and by the apostles. We should know and remember the word, pretty simple and clear, right? He says, if you want to have a purified mind, study the Bible. Study the Scripture and know what the Scripture tells us, specifically about the end days, specifically about the future of our lives. He calls on us to remember the predictions, remember the prophecies of old, and this calls back, obviously, to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is no longer a binding covenant over our lives, but it definitely remains effective as revelation from God and as insight for the future. It all points to Jesus declaring that the Messiah would come first, He would deal with sins, and then He would begin building towards His kingdom. Now, these two eras, if you will, that the Messiah is involved in is there's the church era and there's the kingdom era, right? The kingdom era is eternal. The church era is temporary. The church era where the gospel of forgiveness of sins is being preached that we continue to exist into this day, moving towards the kingdom era. Now, the church era is not often, uh, we don't often see a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament about it, but there's one scripture I'll show you that has a pretty clear, uh, I think gives a pretty clear picture of what the church era is, is uh, like or what it was going to be like and what we have seen realized in our own time. Micah, the prophet, in chapter 4 of his book says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, mountains in ancient literature, mountains in the Old Testament, refers to jurisdiction, it refers to government, or it refers to institution. So this isn't talking about a physical mountain, but it's referring to the widening or the broadening of the influence of God. And I think that could not speak of anything but the church, right? The church began as a little tiny seed, right? And it grew and it grew and it grew and it went deeper and wider. And this mountain of influence spread. And here's why I believe this is talking about the church. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. The people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And this isn't referring to a concrete place, but a, uh, but a, uh, but a place that is all over the world. Where many nations on many places and many different tribes and many different tongues all go to seek the influence and the word of God. That he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it's not necessarily in one place, but it's coming out of, or it came out of, Israel. Which is clearly speaking of the church that was born in Jerusalem and grew and now exists all over the world. So we live in that era. The gospel went out from Israel and God is calling to Himself people from all over. But this era will not always be. That there is an end of this age we call the church. There is an end of this era and the kingdom era is our destiny. And the Old Testament makes it clear in many different places that this is not just Israel's future, but our future.
Zechariah, the prophet, says this. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So at one point, he broadened out his jurisdiction. He spread far and wide the message of the, of the word. He became the God of the whole world. And, and in the end days, this will all funnel back. Not that he will turn away from the rest of the world, but that the rest of the world will become part of this holy nation, this holy land, this chosen people, chosen of all in Abraham's day that will continue to be his people that will one day be the culmination of his plan. So you see all that, all that, how that comes together? It went broad, it went deep, it went, it went wide and it comes back together. And we're included in that. And I don't think you can interpret that anyway, but literally, right? Judah in Jerusalem, once again, as, as in it has been off the radar for a while, but now we're focusing back or one day we will. The Gentiles will call Israel their home as well. And you think that's, that kind of is odd. But the Gentiles, we have been made God's people too through the new covenant, through Jesus. But there is a clear teaching from both Old and New Testament that God has a future plan for Israel on this earth as the epicenter of his kingdom to come whether it's heaven on earth or for all eternity, some sort of millennial reign that takes place at the end of the age. We don't know the exact details, but that doesn't matter. What does matter is that this is definitely in our future. Yes, our future as Christians. Peter tells us we ought to pay as much attention to what the New Testament teaches from Jesus and his apostles. And listen to this analogy. And this, I'll go slow so we get this. But Paul uses... A very unique language to talk about what God has been up to through the church and what he's building back towards in regards to Israel. Romans chapter 11. For if you, that's the church, that's Gentiles, Christians, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, as in not Israel, a wild olive tree as in Gentiles, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. So the wild olive tree, that's the Gentiles, we were grafted from a wild tree into the cultivated natural tree. That's speaking of Israel. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Speaking of God turning back to the Jewish people in some sort of uh, awesome, revivalistic way in the end of days. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, of what is to come. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So when the church age ends, God will once again turn to the nation of Israel to begin the process of fulfilling Abraham's promise and rolling us into eternity. Now the rapture doesn't have to be before God regrafts Israel into the vine. There are reasons to believe it will happen that way, but it doesn't have to. But when Israel is regathered and begins to rebloom, we know that Jesus is coming soon. And now we live in a day when a lot of people have showed up with prophecies and predictions and as many doubters have met them to dismantle the idea entirely. Peter refers to those scoffers and he says, many will come in the last days walking according to their own desires, saying, where is the promise of His coming? We've heard this for years. 
where, the, where it is. And, and well, right now, it's in His Word. But we can rest assured that as we have seen so much of it realized and fulfilled, we know that, that, yet, that what is yet fulfilled is trustworthy as well, right? Jesus even acknowledged to His generation that at the end of days, they may be a way off, He foretold the destruction of Jerusalem, which can be fact-checked, right? In 70 AD, Jerusalem was surrounded by her enemies. But he closed off that prediction with an even greater prophecy. And if you would look with me for just a minute, back over to Luke chapter 21, I can show you this, and this is a text that we've looked at before. You can look at it in your own time. I think it's a pretty rich text in terms of prophecy. Um, But it's one that can be fact-checked and gives us a great understanding about how, what God's plan is for the future of our, of our world and of our own lives. Luke 21, listen to verse 20 through 28. All this stuff actually happened. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and know, then know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of the vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon his people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, be led away into, captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All of those verses have, have, those have been fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D and in the conquest of Israel that, that, that lasted up until 1948 when Israel became a nation after th- nearly 2,000 years of slumber. You can't make that up, can you? And here's even what's, what's even more amazing. Had this been written after 70 AD, you, every gospel where this is mentioned, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would have a verse that would follow and it would say, and it was fulfilled just as he said. But what makes this awesome is that this scripture is so close to when this was written, so close to when Jesus actually said this stuff, It was written before this actually happened, which shows us that Jesus called what would take place so soon after his death, and it took place just as he said. If that doesn't make make your hair stand up and make you sit up a little bit straighter, I don't know what does. Verse 25, here he refers to the end of days. And there will be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, and on earth, distress of nations, perplexity, the sea, the waves roaring, men's heart failing them for fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on earth, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. So this looks forward to a time and a day that we are vastly approaching. The passage that we read refers to the rebirth of Israel and the return of Jesus that don't have to take place right next to one another, but Jesus goes on to tell us that they're not far apart. Then he spoke to them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are ready, when they are already budding, you see and know for yourself that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all things take place. 
Heaven and earth will, not pass, will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So we see a clear reminder that these things are a sign that the end that Jesus predicts is coming soon. Again, Jesus called his own death, burial, and resurrection. I think we can safely go with him on his return, don't you? Peter says the reason many scoff is because of our own sinful desires, our own lusts. I don't think Peter's suggesting that those who don't daily talk about it um, are, are dreadfully sinning. I think he's saying that our nature is to plant our heels in whatever patch of dirt we feel safe and solid on. We'll talk about, more, uh, talk about this more next time, but we need to consider what we're investing our lives in and how we're living. In the last half of this chapter, we'll deal with that, but I'll tease that with just a few reminders. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So doing what? Doing what he has called us to do. Being faithful in the worlds that he has placed us in and the lives that he has called us to live. In the book of Acts, when Jesus ascended, the angel asked this question. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you will come in the same way as you saw him go. So we ought to be obedient. We ought to be diligent. We ought to be active in serving him while we wait. Living the best lives we can live with the people he has put in our lives for the purpose that he has given us. So we need to be serving Him, making the most of each day, loving God, loving one another, serving God, serving one another, honoring God, honoring one another, obeying His commandments. Because we can trust that Jesus is indeed coming again. On top of His own promises, we have the past reality that God once judged the ancient earth with water. And that all points to a future judgment of this world that Peter clearly states will come. In verse number 7, Revelations 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thrown into. As in he was warned. She was warned. Clear opportunity was given to make their eternal arrangements. But they didn't. Rest assured, God will had the last word over our lives. But He has given us His word to show us the way to eternal life. This whole text has been about God having the last word and God's word remaining forever. And yes, God will have the last word over our life, but isn't it awesome and isn't it a privilege to know that He has given us His word to show us the way that we not, might not be lost forever? But on the flip side of those that will perish forever are those who will live forever. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. Man, He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. So what, I, what John sees is not... Uh, is not leaving this earth and going to some faraway land, but he sees heaven coming to earth, and he sees a restoration of what always has been, a restoration of both heaven and earth to form one united dwelling place where God and people live together forever. That is our future. And listen, 
we can enjoy this life. And many of us, you, and we all have some good stories and more good than bad to talk about as we live out each and every day. And if we are able to enjoy life in a fallen world with those that we love and those that we are around and the people God puts in our life, how much more do you think we will enjoy life in an eternal, perfect world? Don't believe the lie the enemy tells you all oh, it's not as good as it it's not as it won't be as good as it is now or don't let the enemy scare you that the future is something that will take away life from you. The promise of the scripture is that what's next is the best to come. And if you and your sinful mind are able to enjoy this fragile finite earth, how much more will we enjoy forever? Just think about that. One day, we will make heaven our home. Heaven will meet earth and make all things new, including you, including me. We don't know when, we don't know the details of the how, but we do know the who. His name is Jesus. And oh, what a wonderful name that is. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for just a glimpse into eternity. God, as we stand on this ground tonight, we feel like we're pretty still. But we know, based on all the awesome evidence you gave us, we are moving towards eternity at a rapid pace. And Father, let it not be a thing that scares or a thing that intimidates, but a thing that excites And gives us a sense of awe and wonder. Father, we are thankful that we don't have to be blind to what you are up to. But we can be awake to it. We can be in tune with it. And though many scoff at the idea, we rejoice around it. And we know that you have made it very clear to us in the prophets and in the New Testament. That we are closer than we ever have been. The church age is coming to an end and you will restore the kingdom to Israel and heaven on earth will be our eternal state in the new Jerusalem where you fulfill your promise to your people. Father, that is awesome and it's exciting to think about what that's going to be like. And God, I can't wait to experience it with your people that you've made me a part of here at this church. But God, in the meanwhile, we've got a job to do. We've got families to love. We've got jobs to fulfill. We've got churches to grow. We've got things to do. And God, blessed be the one who is found so doing when you come. Father, may this not distract us from our mission, but may it drive us and determine and devote us to it all the more. And we say together, even so come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.